You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, Paul here, and just a quick message from me to let you know that if you are looking to improve the performance of your team, no matter whether it is a work, sporting, or community one, then we've developed some tools to help. On the website, you will find our Thriving Teams Diagnostic, which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quinn's is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance of lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Now you roll and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity. Hello and welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast where we believe there is no algorithm for leadership, and so we interview great sports coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us lead our families, our colleagues, and our teams better. Our great coach on this episode is Matt Thornton. Matt is a Brazilian jiu-jitsu coach who has coached some of the greatest mixed martial artists in the world. He is the founder of the Straight Blast Gym, where he has developed cross-training in several martial arts, as well as boxing and wrestling. The gym now has over 50 affiliate academies located around the world. Fighters he has coached include Randy Couture, Forrest Griffin, and Dan Henderson, while he has helped develop the careers of coaches like John Kavanagh and Carl Tanswell. He's also a guest lecturer on philosophy and has recently published a book called The Gift of Violence, Practical Knowledge for Surviving and Thriving in a Dangerous World. In this philosophical and insightful interview, some of the highlights for me were his core philosophy of aliveness, which emphasizes training on timing, energy and motion through competing to deliver repeated experiments. The idea that you can't acquire meaningful skill in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu without submitting 
thousands of times. And through this approach to testing and learning through failure, you achieve progress. And his belief that, quote, frustration in the moment is almost always a useless emotion. So you run into a problem in a fight or you run into a problem in a match. That's something that we're here to solve. That's a puzzle that will admit to a solution, end quote. If you enjoy listening to the podcast and would like to learn more, you can head over to our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com, where we offer exclusive video and podcast content for subscribers that is taken from the more than 150 interviews we have done with some of the world's great coaches. The content is downloadable, shareable, and designed to start a conversation around the dinner table, locker room, or boardroom table. We also have a newsletter that features information on our latest podcasts, leadership insights from our guests, recommendations they have on books or other media, as well as information on how you can engage with other people who listen on Zoom sessions to discuss topics like culture, behaviors, or starting new teams. You can sign up for that as well as access all of our content that we have on our website at thegreatcoachespodcast.com. And now, please enjoy our interview with Matt Thornton. You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Matt Thornton, good morning, my time. Good afternoon, your time. Good afternoon. And Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Well, welcome to The Great Coaches Podcast. We're very happy to have you here. Matt, can I start with something really simple? Could you tell me where you are in the world and what you've been up to so far today? Sure. I'm in Portland, Oregon. So West Coast, the United States, kind of at the very top um, of the state of Oregon, between Oregon and Washington. Uh, been here for 30-something years. I started a gym here about 30 years ago called Straight Blast Gym, <clears throat> and that kind of spread to different locations around the world over time. And then most recently, I wrote a book so behind me here, The Gift of Violence. And um, yeah, so I've been talking to people and talking about the book primarily uh, over the last couple months. Well, we're going to get into the book, we're going to get into the gyms, we're going to get into your background, and we're going to explore all the many avenues that's taken you along the way. But I wanted to start actually with a quote. And you say, all combat sports, when done properly, teach you to see puzzles instead of roadblocks. Every puzzle has a solution, and the job of a great coach is to help the athlete find it. It was an intriguing quote, and I wanted to ask you straight up, can you tell us about the great coaches you have known and how they go about helping people solve these puzzles? Sure. Boy, I've had I've had the privilege of knowing a ton of great coaches in my life. Uh, we have uh, a number of fantastic world-class coaches in the organization. So, of course, there's John Cavanaugh, who runs SBG Ireland and most well-known recently probably for Conor McGregor's success. But we also have Adam and Roy Singer, Chris Connolly. I mean, I could list a hundred fantastic coaches. Um, what do I think they have in common? I think the main thing any good coach has in common is the interest of the athlete. I mean, the goodwill and interest of the athlete. They're there. They're in that building. They're in that training environment. They're in that place at that moment to help that person get better. And nothing else really exists in the world at that moment, except you and the athlete that you're trying to help improve. The quote really just speaks to combat sports in general. <clears throat> and it, another way of saying it 
from a different angle would be one of the things I tell my athletes is frustration in the moment is almost always a useless emotion. So you run into a problem in a fight or you run into a problem in a match. That's something that we're here to solve. That's a puzzle that will admit to a solution. And our job is to try and find that solution, not a roadblock, not something to get frustrated over, not something to certainly stop the journey over. Um, but it's the way forward. And, and jujitsu in particular, Brazilian jujitsu is a martial art kind of teaches that to people because no matter how bad a position you find yourself in or how, how crushed you're getting or how pinned you feel you are, there is invariably always a technical solution that you can find to that problem, a mechanical solution that will admit to um, best practices that will allow you to escape or at least just survive. And so you learn to become comfortable in uncomfortable situations over and over and over again. And then you learn, ultimately, after you learn to become comfortable, you learn to start to overcome those situations. And hopefully you can apply those lessons to other areas of your life. But I do think they become self-evident on the jujitsu mat, which is one of the great things about the sport. I want to talk to you a little bit about the lessons that can come from failure, but I'd like to go on a bit of a journey that can that can take us there actually, Matt. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the book. It's called The Gift of Violence, which is a it's just a really gr- uh, grabbing heading. It really caught my attention, you know, when I saw it there because it's not a not a term you hear often. But Mm-mm. in the, in the first few pages, you have this quote, and you say, "I have long come to realize that freedom from manipulation and exploitation by physical means is a gift, and it's available to everyone who is willing to work and learn for it." Mm-hmm. And was there a moment or an event that helped you form this realization? I don't know if there was one particular moment that I can immediately, that immediately comes to mind, but you know, I've been on this path. This has been my only job teaching combat athletics has been my only job for 30 years. And I think it's been a a growing realization over the decades as, you know, one of the other things I'll talk about there is one of the goals we have for the organization is to make good people more dangerous to bad people. And Interpersonal violence, which is the kind of violence I'm talking about in the book, kills about four times as many people every year as all the wars combined. And so that's crime and homicide and things like that. And the only practical solution to that problem, not not cultural solution, but individual solution, is to make yourself more dangerous, to make yourself a harder target, to make yourself somebody that predators aren't going to want to pick. And the process of doing that when it's done well, not just, I think the thing that I started to learn over time, and I think something the other coaches started to see as well, it doesn't only just, it doesn't just make good people more dangerous to bad people. It can also make better people because you're having to go through these trials and these tribulations and this training and finding yourself in these uncomfortable situations and a relationship with another human being, a physical relationship that you have to have, uh, you have to lose over and over again. I mean, you can't acquire any meaningful skill, for example, in Brazilian jiu-jitsu without tapping, submitting thousands of times. I mean, it's just part of the process. If you're unwilling to put yourself through that process, if you're unwilling to lose, that skill level is unattainable to you. And so in that sense, failure is not just okay. It's actually an essential part of the of the whole system. And I think doing that over and over again, especially if you're doing it in a a community that has a lot of mature people in it, 
that are there for the right reasons. I think doing that can dramatically affect people in a positive way. You know, I've seen all kinds of, I've seen autistic kids come in that couldn't even look someone in the eye or talk to them. And then a year or two later from doing jujitsu, not from therapy or me talking to them or any conversations necessarily per se, I have with them as a coach, but just the process itself of what happens on the mat within a year or two of that, they're like a different person. And oftentimes they're teaching classes and they're, they're looking people in the eye and they're having conversations and and their life has changed for the better. And so I've seen that enough over the last three decades to, to realize it's possible and also probably slowly, but eventually realize that that's also kind of the point behind what we do. I think this idea of tapping out and learning thousands of times in order to master a skill is a very, it's a great analogy for life. Mm-hmm. But Matt, there's another aspect of your story that I find fascinating as a, as a parent of two daughters. Your childhood was quite violent. The way you describe it in the book, to me, sounded violent. And yet at the same time, your father was a police officer. Yeah. And your mother, the way you describe her too, she had a very deep faith in religion. Mm-hmm. And all mm-hmm. of these pillars have come together to shape your view on combat. And I find that absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. To be clear, uh, I don't I, I didn't have that rough of a of a childhood. I don't want to give that impression. There are people who have really brutal, really violent childhoods. Mine my childhood was not that. I I think I actually had a really good childhood. But for the purposes of the book, you know, I'm intentionally talking about my interactions with violence. And so you know, that becomes the the main thing you end up reading about. <clears throat> and I'm also specifically targeting a period when I went through puberty and started to go through junior high school and I was in that like 13 to 15 year old age, which is a real tough age for a lot of kids and young men. And that's oftentimes when a lot of violent behavior starts to, to come into play. And it certainly did for me. So I was definitely, I definitely had a couple of years of the delinquent for sure. And I had my run-ins with violence, but my, the only stories I tell about, about violence and, and, um, and fights and things like that. They're in the book for a very specific reason. They're there to illustrate a point or something that I'm trying to talk about. Matt, you have this idea of aliveness. It's at the mm-hmm. central theme. Once we move beyond those early junior high examples of run-ins with some of the school bullies, you start to get this idea of aliveness and it starts to permeate your life. And it becomes the impetus, I think, for you to set up your first gym. Yeah. Could you just unpack this philosophy and explain it uh and and why it's influenced you so much? Absolutely. Yeah. So that was the that is the organizing principle behind Straight Blast Gym. And that is of all the different coaches and the people that that found themselves, you know, connected with me, whether it was Kavanaugh in Ireland or Carl in the UK or any of these other humans came to me. I think the main reason was the aliveness and was what I was talking about with aliveness. And, and what it is really simply is because of how I grew up and just because the way, whatever reason, the way my mind works, what I've always been interested in when it comes to martial arts is what works and what doesn't work in a fight. You know, the, the mystical kind of uh, cultural affectations that go along with it were never really of interest to me. I want to know what works. And so when I took up martial arts, I took it up for that very specific purpose. And I was intentionally moving myself towards the arts that I felt would be more functional. And along the way, uh, I had the questions that I think a lot of people have, which is why some martial arts work in fights and why some don't. And for people who 
are watching this and may not know much about martial arts, I mean, I'll just state very bluntly, the vast majority of martial arts are bullshit and they don't work in fights. They're um, dead patterns. And the martial arts that do work in fights, one of the things I noticed is one of the things they all have in common is their sports. So the arts, for example, that you'll see in the UFC, you're going to see boxing and Muay Thai and and wrestling and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and maybe some Judo or Sambo or d- these different functional arts. That is the thing they all have in common. They're all, they all have a sporting aspect to it. And because they're sports, people cared about results. And when people care about results, they turn to the opponent process and they turn to meritocracy. They turn to a system where failure is involved. And that's just, it, it, it is in all intents and purposes, it's the scientific process applied as, as it's meant to be done when science is done well, applied to hand to hand combat. Right. So you have repeated experiments over and over again, and you, you learn from those experiments and then you adapt best practices. And so trying to explain that, I could write an essay about it. I could talk about each individual sport. I could talk about athletic training in general. But what I did was I, I realized that just one word that encapsulates all that, which is aliveness. And aliveness is timing, energy, and motion. And if one of those aspects are missing, then what you're going to be doing is going to be functional. It won't have any timing. You won't be getting timing from it. And I talk about this a lot in the book, but the analogy I use is teaching my daughter badminton. And so, you know, I lob the ball at her very slowly, and she swings and she misses, and then I do it again, slower maybe. She swings and she misses. When we repeat this process, eventually she hits it. And then after she hits it a few times successfully, I start to back up, start to speed it up. It's a very simple process, but, you know, that's how I teach her badminton. Compare that to the way a lot of traditional martial arts were, and they would have some memorized form that she would have to repeat, and I would and I would start criticizing the way her fingers are pointed and her toes, and we would talk about her chief flow and just a whole bunch of nonsense and basically dead patterns. And in person... X responds with move Y, and then you counter with movement Z, and there's no timing. It's just a repetition of a, of a dead pattern. It's memorization. And everything that's going to work in a fight requires timing. The difference between a, a really good black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu and maybe a purple belt isn't necessarily knowledge of technique, but it's timing. It's the black belt's ability to apply that technique. Um, and you can only get that timing through a live training. So by explaining to people what aliveness was and what aliveness was not, and when, and having someone really understand the concept when they do, then I feel like it's impossible for them to ever get bullshitted by fake martial arts. So it's kind of like a, a foolproof bullshit detector system for martial arts that I think, you know, you can apply to other aspects of life as well to find out what works and what doesn't work. And, um, and the, and the term I use for it is aliveness. And that became fairly popular because what I was stating, what I feel like I often do in my career over the last 30 years is trafficking in the obvious. And um, lots of people understood that. Lots of people felt that. Lots of people noticed that. Very few people said it publicly um, or wanted to articulate it for a lot of different reasons of not wanting to criticize a system or whatever. And so because I... I was the first one to talk about it and to say it in a way that made sense. A lot of people listen to that and I go, you know, that's right. That makes sense. I want to train with this person. And that's how the organization grew. 
But to this day, it is the overriding principle behind everything we do. It may, it ensures that everything we do is based in truth, which to me is really important. And, and everything else flows from that. And some gyms will have professional MMA teams, and some gyms will just work primarily with law enforcement, and some gyms will maybe be focused just on hobbyists and self-defense. But what we, the one thing we all have in common is that training with aliveness. Matt, when you talk about alive training, in the book you say, and this is a quote, you say, alive training and respect for other human beings and yourself are never mutually exclusive things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What I wanted to ask you was, is there ever a risk that excess competitiveness can misplace this respect for others? Sure. Um, they are never mutually exclusive. And I talk about this a little bit in the book, but one of the few criticisms that traditional martial artists will make of that are worth paying any attention to is, well, you know, all their care, all those guys care about is what works in a fight or what doesn't work in a fight. And they're lacking, you know, the, um, the respect and honor and all the other things you learn from martial arts. And my experience has actually been the opposite. So when I travel around to different MMA gyms, different Brazilian Jiu Jitsu schools, even ones that aren't part of my organization, but just, regular facilities there's good people and there's bad people and there's going to be people there that you you may not like but overall the community as a whole is filled with a lot of really good people and to the point where i think an outsider who came and and had the same experience i did and visited the different gyms and i've had friends who who've done this one of my friends is a philosophy professor who's recently been traveling around the world and everywhere he goes now, he travels to a different, he goes to a Brazilian jiu-jitsu school because now, and you know, there's a school everywhere, every part of the world. And, uh, and he always, you know, messages me and he talks about how awesome everyone was, was to him, how everybody, you know, treated him so well and what a wonderful experience it was. And so there is something about training in a way that's real. And part of that, as I, I think I already touched on is, is having to, it requires a kind of personality who's going to be okay with failing over and over again. And that in and of itself requires a kind of humility that can't be faked any more than you can fake being able to speak Spanish. And so <clears throat> it um, it attracts a certain type of person. And I've had the opposite experience in many ways when I visited or, or spent time around what, what I'll call fantasy-based martial arts. <clears throat> Excuse me, because what happens is You'll get people who get interested in that martial art, maybe because they got bullied as a kid or they're insecure or scared, whatever. They wind up training in something that's not real. Um, every practice is of some form of make-believe. It's some form of choreography. For example, Aikido, where you're never really throwing anybody. The other person's just taking a fall for you. And somewhere deep down, you have to know that that's the case. Maybe some people don't. Every once in a while, you'll see somebody who truly is delusional, and they're the ones that will usually try and enter into an MMA fight one time or something, and they realize, oh, my God, I have no idea what I'm doing. But by and large, I think a lot of these people are smart, and deep down, they know what they're doing doesn't work. And so what happens is they wind up defending a position that's based in a lie. And uh, and it takes people who are maybe kind of scared and insecure and makes them scared and insecure dicks, right? It just makes them worse, you know. Uh, and if you took that same person and you put them into any combat athletic facility, a judo club, a boxing club, 
a wrestling club, whatever. It doesn't have to be Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, but just somewhere where what you're doing is going to be real. Assuming they stick with it, because the first year or two you do any of those arts, you're going to get beat up. And the first year or two you do boxing, you're going to get hit a lot. First year or two you do judo, you're going to get thrown on your butt all the time. I mean, you're going to go through the ringer. Assuming they're willing to put themselves through that, I will guarantee you that when you go and meet that person in a year or two or three years later, they're going to be a better human. You know, they're going to have worked through some of those issues. And that just has to do with practicing something that's based in truth. Matt, there's another quote that I think you, you talk about practicing in truth. You talk about humility. You've referenced it a couple of times mm-hmm. already in this interview. And I want to I want to pick up on this idea of being able to learn and being coachable because there's a another great quote in the book where you say anyone coachable can become a fighter. But you use quotes around that word fighter. Mm-hmm. Tough isn't how you are born. Tough is how you perform. And how you mm-hmm. perform is a result of scientific training, not simply a genetic throw of the dice. And I think this is an idea that you talk a lot about through learning through failure as well. It's an idea, I think, that resonates very strongly with me as a parent, but also someone who's in the workplace trying to encourage others to experiment and innovate and learn and not be afraid of failure. And Mm -hmm. and what I wanted to ask you from your travels across the world and all of the gyms that you're associated with, what have you learned about being coachable? What can we all do to be better at it? Good question. Just to give a little bit of background on that particular quote, because I think it'll help explain it a little bit better. Before I really, and I talk about this history in the book a little bit, but before I really went full bore into Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, right about the time that I discovered Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I was an instructor in an art called Jeet Kune Do Concepts. And it's a, it's a, one of the weirder martial arts in the sense that they will do things that are functional. They'll do boxing and, and kickboxing and things like that. And at the time, I was boxing at a boxing gym every day. And then there'll be other aspects to it that are just complete nonsense. And I would hear the instructors talk in to the group, to the students one way. And in behind closed doors, I would hear them talk differently. And it was, and that, that really bothered me. And it was a duplicity about the whole thing. And one of the things they would say consistently, and I heard it time and time again was, well, some people are fighters and some people aren't. And that was their way of excusing the fact that what they were teaching didn't work. So every once in a while, you'd have somebody tough that would come in that would focus more on the boxing and stuff. That would be the fighter. And then you have all these other people come in, and you're teaching them things that aren't ever going to work in a fight. And then you're you're making up an excuse for it by saying, well, some people are, are just born fighters and some people aren't. And my experience, that that really bothered me. But also, it goes against everything that I've ever seen. Nobody is born a fighter. There are people who are born more gifted athletically, for sure, or in terms of temperament and things like that. And not everybody can go in and become a champion in a cage any more than anybody can go in and become a professional NBA player or professional football player. But everybody can play the game, and everybody can learn to fight. I've never met a single person on this planet who could not learn to fight, assuming, as, as I mentioned in that quote, quote that they're coachable. And so that's that's what that is about. I think, you know, if, if you walk into my school or any of the other gyms or any really any functional combat athletic club, every person on that map that's been there for a while is going to have some measure of skill, whether they're a 65-year-old woman or 
an eight-year-old kid. I mean, I have the full age range here at my gym, so it's certainly doable. Now, as far as what being coachable means, there's a certain amount of trust you have to have between the coach and the student, and obviously you have to trust that your coach has your best interest at heart, and you have to trust in the material, and you have to believe in the art. Um, and in an, in an art like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, that's pretty easy to do because you're going to be in a room and you're going to see, I mean, it's you'll see people who are capable of executing the art at that higher level, and you'll realize that if you stay with it and train long enough, that could be you. And, and so you have these role models in the gym that you, as true evidence. So it helps you believe in the system. But once you have those ingredients down, really it's just a question of listening to your coach and not repeating the same mistakes. So what will happen? Um, like my experience of teaching Brazilian Jiu Jitsu over the last few decades is that women learn it a lot faster than men, put it that way. And, I've seen, you know, a, a high level of skill in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you, you're awarded your black belt, which for most people takes 12 to 15 years to get, assuming they're training several days a week. Um, someone that gets it in eight or nine years is doing really well. I've had a few that I've seen attain that level in five or six years. And when I say that, I'm not talking about the, the belt. The belt is just a, a symbol of a tangible skill. Like I said earlier, you can't fake any more than you could fake being able to play an instrument. So they achieve this level of skill, a provable level of skill, because they could compete in that division and do well within five or six years. It's very rare, but it happens. But I've seen it happen a lot more with women than men. And the reason is, when I'm usually when I'm coaching female athletes, I will see them perhaps make a mistake on the mat or do something that will eventually lead to bigger problems. And I want to help a, help adjust that habit. And that's kind of what you're always doing is you're helping them develop different habits. And I'll explain that to them. It'll make sense. And maybe they'll ask me for some clarification, why or this or that, so that they understand it better, which I appreciate because I think it's really important that everybody understands how the art works, not just repeating it, but you have to once you understand your mind how it actually works, you can problem solve a lot faster. So I will engage in that conversation with them, and then once it makes sense to them after a minute or whatever of talking, they don't repeat that mistake anymore. <laughs> They'll go back on the mat. They'll repeat a different mistake, which is the whole point. So you're finding another mistake. You're finding you're moving on to the next layer of failure, and that's how you work your way up. What happens sometimes with men is I'll do the same thing, especially some of the stronger, more athletic guys. But that, let's say that particular mistake or habit that they have sometimes works when they're rolling with another person in the gym. And if they care more about beating their training partner in the gym than they do learning jujitsu, which I think happens, and I'm painting with a broad brush here, but in generalizing, I think is more common for men than it is for women. I think women are more interested in getting good at jujitsu and less interested in beating their training partners at the gym. And sometimes men are too interested in beating their training partners and not a, not as interested as they should be in getting good at the art. And because of that, when I'm not looking or when, you know, I'm not around, they will go ahead and repeat that error because it works for them at that moment. And the the more somebody has a tendency to do that, the the longer their learning curve is going to be. And, and sometimes, you know, they'll even hit a kind of a glass ceiling that they won't be able to get past and it's just their own inability to let go of certain old habits that they had. So being coachable is 
not repeating the same mistakes over and over again. And when you have your coach or your mentor or whoever it is be able to point out a mistake that you're making and explain to you why that's a mistake and it makes sense to you, then your job as an athlete is to go out and try not to repeat that mistake so that we can move on to the next thing. And the faster you are at that, the faster you get better. And that's a skill like anything else that can be trained. And some people do it a little naturally better than others. Um, and a lot of it has to do with ego. But that's that would definitely be what I would put at the top of my list as far as being coachable. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's interesting hearing you talk about the difference between men and women because in the book you also talk about boy speak. Yeah. Now, I, I thought this was the bravado that many fighters just showed before the fight. I thought it was all part of the theatre of combat sports. But but you have a very different view on this idea of boy speak. Yeah, well, I'm not just to be to clear when I'm when I talk about boy speak in general, I'm not talking about professional fighters. Um, with professional fighters, it's different because that is their job. If you're a professional fighter, your job is to put butts in seats and to get people to pay for pay-per-view. That's your job. You don't get paid to be a great fighter. Being a great fighter is what they think they get paid for. And it's important. And you have to be a great fighter. Or you, you won't be at that level. Really, what you're getting paid for is having people want to come see you, whether that's because they hate you or they love you. You're getting paid to sell tickets. And so that kind of bravado that you know, you would see Muhammad Ali kind of in many ways um, personified and Connor is a master at it. That's in, in that's part of their job. When I talk about boy speak, I'm talking about something a little bit different. I'm talking about a tendency that a lot of young men have, even grown men, to pretend to have knowledge when it comes to violence. And there's a lot of different reasons why men will pretend to have knowledge when it comes to violence. Some of them uh, are related to reproduction, access to women. Um, ha- there, there's a lot of reasons why men would want other people to think that they're capable when it comes to violence. And so there's a bravado that starts to come out that is uh, one of the the first signs that the person doesn't actually have any knowledge of what they're doing when it comes to violence. And, um, and that's what I mean by boy speak. It's, it's kind of adolescent. It's, uh, you know, talking about what you would do in a particular situation or how, you know, how violent you are, this, this or that. And the, the more someone trains in a combat sport, the less likely they are to do that. Um, they're the less likely they would be to have a conversation like that. Just, just like it is with soldiers, and the more, 
the more someone has actually been in war, seen situations like that, the less likely they're going to be to come home to the bar and start bragging about what they did or did not do on the battlefield. Um, and that's kind of what I was referring to. And it's, it's a, um, it's an indication of immaturity and immaturity in my, in, in my opinion, and this is one of the bigger points of the book as well, lies at the heart of most problematic violence. And, uh, and boy speak is definitely a tell when it comes to immaturity. Matt, there's a, there's a small sentence in the book where you talk about, it's only a small part, you talk about your first Brazilian jiu-jitsu lesson with Fabio Santos. And you say, yeah. he said to you, he said, relax, jiu-jitsu is about learning when to use energy and when to rest. And that takes yeah. time. Just a small sentence. But a lot of leaders, a lot of people, a lot of parents find this really hard to do. And I'm wondering how you've applied this idea to your life as a parent and a, and a successful business owner. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that that was more than 30 years ago. And I remember that moment clearly today. And it's, it's, it's the type of thing that I re I've repeated every other jujitsu instructor on planet earth is repeated to their students over and over and over again. And, and it is definitely one of the single hardest things to do. Um, there's no way around it. You can't like, if you have someone who's on the mat, if we're talking about just the physical martial arts aspect of it for a minute, who's really tense and stiff and having a hard time, it doesn't help to stand over them yelling, yelling at them to relax. Right. So it's almost one of those things that people have to start to experience. It, it's best, like as it is with parenting or managing people or anything else, it's the kind of thing you have to model yourself. Like if you're not modeling that in your own behavior, then it probably won't matter what you say or don't say. But if you can get on the mat and model that kind of relaxed performance yourself and still be able to, to be able to pull it off, be able to do the art, then you serve as a living example as to what can be achieved by relaxing. And jujitsu really is, I don't say that for any, you know, hippie spiritual reason. When we tell people to relax when they're training jujitsu, it's because you're going to be better. You're going to be more dangerous. You're going to be, you're going to respond faster. You're going to be able to feel your opponent's energy better. You're going to be able to move better. Everything is better when you're more relaxed you are. But the truth is that for most people, myself included, and just about everybody else, the only way to get that down is by flight time. So you just got to go back on the mat over and over and over, over again. And yes, definitely. I've got five kids, another one on the way. And that's one of those things, one of those big lessons in life that uh, can translate everywhere. And just like with jujitsu, I think it's one of those things that um, most of us just wind up having to learn through doing over and over again. And and if we want to pass that information on to other people, I think it's best done just by modeling it. I mean, I do explain it. I'll explain it in class. And I'll explain this to students that this is the goal. This is what you're trying to achieve. And if they start to get too out of control, both for the safety and to help them get better, then I might intervene and tell them to relax and calm down. But reality is it's, you know, you got to go in, you're going to get so frustrated as a coach. If, if you don't understand that you, you're going to have people that are going to take years <laughs> to learn how to relax and you've got to be okay with that too. At Matt, one of the great MMA coaches, Chris Houter says, it's a quote about you. He says, Matt Thornton is among the best coaches and innovative thinkers currently bound to earth. It's a nice thing I for one person to say to another. But I wanted to ask you about innovative thinking because your life has taken you on a journey towards more philosophy. 
as you've moved along. And I wanted to ask you, when it comes to innovative thinking, how can we all do more of it and do it better? That's a great question, too. Um, I talk a little bit about this in the book in the second chapter. I put a sec- The second chapter in the book is about truth, and it's basically just a lesson in epistemology, which I feel is very important. And like anything else, when it, it's not the answers that we come to, it's how we arrive at those answers. That's the big point behind science. That's the big point behind um, a practical functional epistemology that's going to get you closer to um, reality instead of further away from it, closer to our goals rather than further away from it. So how you arrive at your conclusions becomes much more important than the conclusions that you hold. And so one of the things I would constantly do is I would search back in my own thinking, in my own brain, and my own ideas, and I would question my beliefs of what I think is true and not true. And above all else, I would question how I arrived at those beliefs. And so you always have to be open to revising your beliefs in light of new evidence. Um, and that always has to be the case. But constantly rethinking how you how you come to these conclusions, I think, is very helpful because I think it is the method you use to arrive at conclusions that spawns that sort of uh, innovative thinking. And the 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 more time you put in to understanding your own internal epistemology and and what you're doing to to arrive at a particular point, the faster you can innovate. If that makes sense. Matt, is there an example, you you talked about the five kids and the sixth on the way. Is there an example where you've perhaps worked with one of the kids to say, let's think about how we arrive at this conclusion rather than the conclusion itself? Could you, is there an an example you could share? I'll give you a good example. Um, I'll get a little political here for a minute. But one of the things that's happened in my city is Portland. I've lived here for 30 years. And so I've had the opportunity to travel all over the world, and I've been to most of the bigger American cities, and I've always enjoyed coming home to Portland. It's it's pretty. It's many ways reminded me of San Francisco, but it was much smaller and didn't have that kind of crime. It was always very safe. You could walk around downtown in Portland at 3 in the morning and never be worried about it or want to be armed. Now it's very different. So... Since the death of George Floyd, and this has happened all over the United States, but in particular in Portland, certain reforms have been put through that have caused violence and and shootings to triple. So the last two years, we've had more shootings on record here in Portland than ever in our history. Homicides have doubled. Downtown is not a place where you would want to go and walk around, especially if you weren't armed. Um, the police are grossly underfunded, understaffed. They don't have time to respond to most of the things. They're going from one 911 call to another 911 call. They're totally demoralized. Um, their training budget has been cut. So everything becomes more dangerous for the suspect and for the police. Um, and, and all crime is through the roof. I think we have, I think we might even be number one as far as stolen cars here in Portland. So, You've gone from 2017, 2018, where it was pretty beautiful, to now, just a few years later, where I would definitely tell you if you were coming to visit, not to go downtown, certainly not at night, and to be careful. And just 
two days ago, we had a shooting around a corner from my house where there was a hundred rounds expended and two people were shot. And that's normal weekend now in Portland. So how did we, how did this happen? It wasn't an accident. It didn't happen because of COVID. It didn't happen because of lockdowns. Crime amongst the rest of the world and, and should have happened here should have gone down during lockdowns. When people are locked indoors, you have less crime. That's why crime is always higher, especially street crime in the summertime when people are outside and gathered around. And yet the opposite happened. And it was the direct result of certain policies that were put through, political policies that were put through by the population. And in, and until they connect the dots between that particular policy and the result of what that policy has created, it's unfixable because they'll just continue to double down and bet on the, on the same policy. When I talk to them, when I talk to people like that, a lot of times what they will talk to me about is what their goal is, how they feel, what they want to have happen. It's very uh, kind of emotional. They're not, in other words, they're not evil. They're not coming from a bad place. What they want is the same thing I want. But what they have not done is they have not sat, sat down and thought about the consequences of that particular policy. They think about the goal. And so they're measuring what's happening based on the goal and not on the results. And as soon as you stop measuring based on results and you start just thinking about just the objective, you're lost. Now there's no connection between the policy and the outcome. They don't understand what's going on and everything tends to get worse. And so that's, that's a pretty like very practical example of where things in a very real way can go bad. And we'll probably have five or 6,000 more homicides this year than we otherwise would have had pre summer of 2019 overall in the United States as a whole, as a direct result of this kind of thinking. And so that's why I think, um, it's, it's the critical thinking and understanding this is so important. And, um, whether, whether we're talking about politics, whether we're talking about sports, whatever we're talking about, we need to be measuring our policies. We need to be measuring our, our decisions based on the results, not on intentions, but on results. And then when we start to look at those results and see that we're moving further away from our goal rather than closer to it, then I think we need to go back and examine those policies and examine what, you know, unintended consequences may have come as a result of them so that we can change it. And as simple as that is, um, I think a lot of people have a hard time doing it for various reasons and uh, can have bad results. You talked about critical thinking there, Matt. You're approaching another stage in your career where you lecture on philosophy these days. In fact, the book is is not a coaching book. It's not a memoir. It's really your philosophy about life and how we can all improve the quality of our life. But in your writing, you talk about philosophy as a verb, mm-hmm. truth in the sense of aligning as much as possible our beliefs and methods with the actuality in the natural world. Now, it's, a, it's an interesting idea, and I'm Wondering if you could explain to us how you think this idea could help improve the lives of people. Yeah, I think I think philosophy is something you do, and something that you engage in, and uh, a certain level of introspection and thought, and uh, you know, the, the life well lived, quote unquote. And 
and thinking about how you going back to the epistemology, you know, how you arrived at your conclusions and and uh, constantly reexamining your your beliefs and um, remaining open to to new evidence, I think, is the key to the whole thing. And yeah. So if I could take you back now to that yep. young man in junior high. I don't think you actually had the growth spurt yet. I'm not sure. I don't think because I know you're, you're quite tall. I'm not sure how tall you were in junior high. But if I could take you back there to that boy that was was getting bullied or experiencing some bullying, knowing mm-hmm. what you know now, what would you tell him? I would have, I would tell myself to immediately fight back, not in the way I did. So in the way I did, the way I did, basically what happened was, you, you know, I went from one extreme to the other extreme and was essentially feeling the same thing internally the whole time. But I went from fear to aggression and discovered that aggression felt a lot better than fear and also produced better outcomes socially among the people around me. But that doesn't mean it was the answer. It was just kind of like flipping the coin to the other side, which is what happened when I was a young man. I don't think that's uncommon. Um, I think that happens a lot. And I, I think I even mentioned in the book, you know, some people speculate they don't understand when one kid will, you know, shoot another kid or something like that will happen. And they, they, they find it very shocking and don't understand how that kind of thing could happen. That kind of thing has never been a mystery to me because I came very close to doing it myself. And I could see how you know, any young man pushed to an extreme could have that happen. So I would go back and I would try to explain to myself that that's not the answer, but you still have to stand your ground and you still have to fight And in those moments, as opposed to going back and hunting those kids down later, which is what essentially what I ended up doing. And then I probably could have stopped the whole cycle of violence much sooner than I did. And, um, and then I would have myself into combat sport i would have taken up wrestling or boxing or judo or anything like that i didn't start martial arts until after i left the military and i would have definitely um put myself into something more athletic and strenuous at a, at a much earlier age to, to be able to work some of this stuff out i think your the candor with which you've answered that question is also something that that seeps through in the book as well but matt one last question Uh, if I could, and I'd like to preface it with a quote. And you say, but what matters to me and what the conclusion I eventually came to as I grew older is that what matters to me about men and women who represent the organization is a shared set of values which we have, which have nothing to do with being belonging or don't require that they belong to any particular religion or not to a religion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. Um, it's a big organization, and I have a lot of friends, and I have a lot of people. I've, I'm blessed in the sense that I have relationships with a lot of people that have lasted for decades, you know. And some of them are. Um, I'm I'm happen to be an atheist. But, um, some of my friends are born again Christians. Um, and none of that matters because at the end of the day, you know, our different opinions about how the nature of the universe started, or whether or not there's a individual personal God or not, those kind of things are just all speculation. And what matters is how you raise your kids, how you treat other people, what you feel is important and not important in your relationships and, and how you manage life. And I've discovered, you know, I might have a lot more in common 
I'm an atheist, but I might have a lot more in common with the with a born again Christian as it relates to some of those values. Um, you know how what our responsibilities are as a man or as a father. Um, how you have to take care of your children, how you have to put your family first, all those kind of things. So if you look at the all the people who I've been friends with for decades, they're, they're, some of them will be atheists, some of them will be religious, some of them might be Christians, some of them might be another denomination, some of them, um, they all come from very different backgrounds. Some of them have PhDs. We have quite a few highly educated people in the organization. Some of them might be construction workers who barely graduated high school. But at the end of the day, all those things don't matter um, to me anyway, or I think to them, what matters is the fact that we have those shared values. And, you know, that's the kind of person that I would want to have around my family and feel comfortable having around my kids. And that's so much more important than any of those other things. And, you know, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is cool that way too, because it is a a pure meritocracy and you walk into the gym on any given night. Like tonight I'll have a class here when we, when we get offline, maybe I'll have 20, 30 people there. There'll be a doctor on the mat. There'll be a construction worker on the mat. There'll be a paramedic on the mat. There'll be somebody who's working retail. There'll be students who haven't gotten a job yet. It's like men, women, older, younger, all these different backgrounds and different uh, socioeconomic uh, places that they're coming from. Where else would all these different people come together like that? And I think what one of the things that's happened in our society, especially recently, is there's really been a kind of sorting going on where people from one socioeconomic background tend to only associate with people from that same socioeconomic background, go to the same schools, marry the same people, shop at the same stores, watch the same movies, read the same newspapers, and have the same information bubble. And people on this other side different and they have their own information bubble and the two bubbles don't really meet or understand each other. This has certainly happened in the United States where we have, I think we're more uh, polarized than ever. And part of it is just the nature, the economic nature of how things have happened over the last few decades. But going back to what I was talking about on the mat, what a beautiful thing. We have Democrats and Republicans and conservatives and liberals and PhDs and construction workers all sharing the mat and nobody cares. All they care about is being there and and training and having a physical relation. When you're training in jujitsu, you have a physical relationship with another human being. You're putting yourself in a position where they could literally break your arm or choke you. So there's a level of trust. You have to be willing to put yourself in a vulnerable position with another human. And that requires a certain level of trust. And so you have this room full of people from all these different backgrounds trusting each other that way. And I think that's uh, unique. And and at the end of the day, I don't know what other word we can come up for it, but that's a shared set of values. And Matt, what do you hope is the legacy of these shared set of values? Well, I hope, and I think it will, I think that the community is going to carry on long after me. Um, my kids and my, 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 um, my students' kids and my black belts kids and their kids and so forth, you know, coming together and training. Cause I, th- I really do think it, it's a, uh, a really good thing for people. So uh, I think it'll just continue. Matt, I hope so. 
I hope it continues for you too, Matt. It's a, the book's a fantastic read. It uh, challenges the way you think about life and yourself. Congratulations on the book. And I wish you all the best uh, for your journey as you continue going around the world spreading this message. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Hi, everyone. You have been listening to the great coach, Matt Thornton. I hope you got a lot out of Matt's reflective and challenging style and found a few ideas that you can bring to your own dinner table, locker room or boardroom table for discussion. When I listened back, the other key highlights for me were his challenge to examine how you arrive at your beliefs in order to unlock more innovative thinking, how being relaxed allows you to respond faster, feel your opponent's energy better, move better, and as a result, you will be more dangerous but it takes years to learn to relax to this extent. And as a coach, you can't get frustrated by this. How anyone can learn to fight as long as they are coachable, but the speed with which you will learn will be influenced by your ego and the humility that is required to learn Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu through failure means that the people who practice it have a strong sense of respect and honor. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And just before we go, if you have any feedback, then please let us know. Just like Neil Boardman, who said, a great podcast which talks to the power of habits and its impact on high performance. The parallels between sport and business is incredibly insightful. Thanks, Neil. We love the interaction with the people around the world who listen. And so if you have any feedback or comments, please let us know. And if they're positive ones, then please let your friends and your network know too. All the details on how to connect with us are in the show notes or on our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.